Bibles to 1 John 4. That's where we'll be primarily this morning. <coughs> While you're turning there, uh, I mentioned this uh, Wednesday night at our Bible study. I know that uh, that was actually Veterans Day. Uh, just some, I, I had a thought and, and looked up some numbers, uh, which aren't hard to find. And um, they are uh, the other way. Gotcha. Okay. Um, but, but ones that we need to be reminded of, uh, and then also to, uh, so that we can pray better and maybe even do some things, and that is that uh, every day in our country, uh, there are 17 veterans and four active duty military men that commit suicide. And it's just, I just found that just stunning. I mean, every day. It's just hard to, to grasp that. I'm sure that there are several different reasons for that as far as what's going on in the lives of individuals. Suicide and those who contemplate suicide can be fairly complicated to a degree. And I know that there are those who would want to clamor for certain things or more things to be done, which is a bad thing. There are those who would, you know, we need to have more psychological help or, or intervention. I would say that they've been having that. The, the, the situation's worse. And too often what happens is, is we can quickly begin to think in secular terms ourselves. We need more programs, we need all these different things that need to be done, and I'm not saying those things are bad. But what we need to re- remind ourselves of is, we need to go back to the Bible. What is man's basic problem that fuels and is foundational to every other problem we have? We're separated from God. We are incomplete, Period. We are without foundation. We are spiritually dead. We are in darkness. We have no light. We have no understanding. And so the answer for these men and women is the gospel of Christ. That's, that's not an overly simplified kind of an answer. That is one that reaches to the very depths of our greatest needs. And so as we pray for vets, and if you know any, remember that uh, if they appear to be struggling with those things or they talk about wanting to get more and more psychological help, whatever the case may happen to be, remember, don't be ashamed of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Because as Romans says, it is the power of God to salvation to all who believe. Amen. And that will help to remedy the situation. It doesn't mean that they will be lifted emotionally out of darkness within 24 hours, but it will mean that they will have hope. It will mean they will have very real help It does mean they will be able to approach the throne of grace to find help in their time of need. It does mean that there will be not only God, but those who know God who will be there as they cry out for help. And so we need to be reminded of these these truths as we face really growing tragedies in in our nation. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we are grateful once again for the gospel of Jesus Christ, which because of the gospel, we are able to gather together here, most of us anyway, as your children able to to gather together to worship you. Father, we worship you by bowing before you together in prayer, submitting, Father, to you and your will, singing wonderful truths about who you are and and what you've done for us, really, in a sense, singing to each other, declaring the, the marvelous truths of the word of God. And then, Father, also, as we then together submit ourselves to your word, as your word is read, as your word is declared. Father, these things will encourage our hearts. We pray that you will enable us, Father, to focus on your word and what it says and to absorb the truths that are in the word. That, Father, we may be strengthened. 
Father, we may be better, even better equipped to help those, to explain to others the relationship that we have with Jesus Christ, to explain to them who you are. We also pray, Lord, that you give us wisdom. As Father, we need to be discerning in the times that we live in. Lord, we know that the church has always needed to be discerning. It does seem, in a sense, that we need to be more discerning than ever before because of the subtleness of, of the evil one, because of the deceptive practices of the evil one. And so, Father, we ask once again that you would equip us in the way that we need to be equipped. Again, we thank you, and we do ask these things in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. So we are still dealing with spiritual gifts. We were dealing with the, the gift of discernment last week and, and uh, took a little bit of, of a look at that. That comes again from 1 Corinthians 12, again in verse 7, to each is given the manifestation of the Spirit for the common good. To one is given through the Spirit the utterance of wisdom. And then when you jump to verse 10, as is to another the working of miracles, to another prophecy, to another the ability to distinguish between spirits. And again, the reason why it's worded that way in the English Standard Version to distinguish between spirits is, think of it this way, what is the spirit behind what's being said? What is the spirit behind, uh, whether it's the teaching of, of a teacher or a false teacher, whether it's the advice given by an individual, by a group, or by society, what is the spirit behind that? What is the motivation that is behind that? Spiros Zodiatus said that the ability to judge between spirits is the ability to tell whether a particular phenomenon is from the spirit of God, from a person's own spirit, or from some demonic spirit. One might call it the supernatural ability to avoid being deceived. He words it that way because in the context of what we have here in 1 Corinthians, it seems that there would be those who would maybe perform what would be viewed as being miracles. And normally what that does is that gives a sense of credibility to the individual who's about to speak. And so the reminder is, is that just because someone can do something that's pretty incredible, that doesn't mean it's from God. I'll never forget, I was talking to, a, I think, I know I've shared stories like this with you, but I was talking to an inmate once when I was a chaplain, and he was telling me that, you know, certain things were happening at a church, and he just knew that the message that was given was from God. And I asked him how he knew that. And he said, well, the individual had done certain things, uh, and I said, well, that's, that's pretty incredible that, that that person did that. I said, but just because he, he healed this individual, that, that still doesn't mean it's from God. He goes, oh, yes, it does. I go, well, how, how do you know that? He goes, because it happened in church. I said, uh, I said, if you meet a woman and you're single, she says she's Christian, and you meet her, you think that, that meeting was arranged by God? He goes, oh, yeah. I said, so if you meet her in church, does that definitely mean she, that was arranged by God? He said, oh, yeah. I said, what if she's married? You're, you're attracted to her. Is that from God? Well, I said, your reasoning is if it happens in church, that means it's from God. I said, that doesn't hold any water. We need to be much more discerning than that. And sometimes we're not any more discerning than just something as simply, simple as that. So, again, we're not to judge the genuineness of the spirits or of a teacher or of advice by what they might be able to perform. It seems that the gift that he's talking about would be the ability to spontaneously or instantaneously tell the genuine from the spurious. But as I mentioned last week, all of us are called as believers to be discerning. Now, that doesn't mean that there's no need for the gift of discernment. But all of us are called by God to be discerning. I would say, and I said this in my prayer, that it seems that there, there's a greater need for that now than ever before. And I do believe that 
part of the reason is, is because the attacks against the church come in many different forms. There's a lot of pressures, just kind of in general, that are put on, on the church, on, on Christians that come from society. Uh, there is, there's going to be more of that, in, just so you know, in the days and months and years ahead. It's going to get worse for the church. I'm not saying that we're all going to be arrested in three months because of what we believe. I, don't, I think that may happen one day. I don't think it'll happen in three months. But there's many other pressures that, that are coming at us that don't include necessarily suddenly being arrested and being taken to jail. Remember that our world, our culture here in, in America as a whole, is one that when they view Christianity, they like us and they hate us. They, they, they want the positive things. You know, they, they want us to talk about loving each other and helping each other. They even like the whole idea of, at least most of the ideas of forgiveness. Now, they don't want to talk about what forgiveness is based on. They want us just to kind of, you know, forgive someone in a vacuum. Just kind of, oh yeah, you're forgiven, and move, move forward. Now, there are certain groups they feel, or certain people they feel should never be forgiven. So there's some inconsistencies there. But there's pressure that is put on us from outside, and also from Maybe people we know that claim to be believers, some may be believers that go to other churches, and may even come from some people within our own church. The pressures to be, oh, much more positive and to be much more, maybe, I guess they won't say it this way, but less discerning. Don't be so picky. We need to be much more open to, to things. Uh, we need to think that what's best about people. And I'm not really against all of that to a degree, but I don't think that we suddenly just put our mind on hold and no longer think about anything. So in 1 John 4, let me read to you the first six verses of that chapter. John writes, Beloved, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits to see whether they are from God. For many false prophets have gone out into the world. By this you know the Spirit of God. Every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God. And every spirit that does not confess Jesus is not from God. This is the spirit of the Antichrist which you heard was coming and now is already in the world. Little children, you are from God and have overcome them. For he who is in you is greater than he who is in the world. They are from the world. Therefore they speak from the world and the world listens to them. We are from God. Whoever knows God listens to us. Whoever is not from God does not listen to us. By this we know the spirit of truth and the spirit of error. Now we started to look at this just a wee bit last week. And we saw that in this negative command, which is do not believe every spirit, John is warning us here against this attitude of acceptance and personal trust uh, in various spirits declaring their message through the human messenger. It seems that, that the charge that John is giving them is prompted by the presence of mighty spiritual powers that were already working through those individuals who were proclaiming to be spokesmen for God. On the positive side, John was insisting that believers must test the spirits to see whether they are from God. When, again, when you look at this in the Greek language, this statement here is what's called, the, uh, what, what he uses, the word test, is the present imperative verb, test. And this, present, this is presented then as a standing duty. We are always to be doing this. Right? There's never a time we're not doing this. We're always analyzing what people say. That, that's, a, that's critical thinking. It's not negative. It's just critical. We should be doing this all the time. This is also what's called in the second person plural. And as I was reading through Weister word studies, he says that what that is emphasizing there is that it lays this duty 
this imperative verb, this testing that we have, this duty is laid on every single person who reads this letter. So all of us as believers have this responsibility. Yes, it's the responsibility of those who are in leadership. Yes, it's the responsibility of the elders of the church. But it, but it goes to every single individual is responsible. One commentator said this, the fact that faithful pastors and orthodox professors are better able to evaluate does not excuse those in the pews from doing their own evaluating. And J.B. Lightfoot says this, John is calling us to use our heads and to examine closely the theologies and doctrines of all of our teachers. There are no benefits to ignorance or to sloppy thinking. So again, in testing the spirits, we need to maintain a biblical balance meaning we want to avoid extreme superstition, which believes everything just because someone says it's from God. And also we want to avoid extreme suspicion, which then believes nothing. All right, so again, there's this call for us to, be, to clear thinking, to, to thinking biblically about things. The specific point that he brings up here for us to test, in determining the source of the spirits in whose power the speakers present their, me- their message, We are to do this to see whether they are from God. So that means then that this testing implies that there is an existence of an objective standard. So this is not based on how we feel. This is based on what we know to be true. There's a precedent for this. Donald Burdick says in one of his books on the Old Testament, he says, Moses gave the people a criteria by which to test anyone who professed to be a prophet. That's found in Deuteronomy 18. And there were three things that he that he draws out of that text. And that is, number one, what he said must agree with what God has previously revealed. And we are to use that. In other words, whenever we hear anything being said, we want to compare that to what God has already revealed. Well, we have quite a bit of it. It's all here. And so we need to make sure there's no disagreement with this. That's why oftentimes when it comes to false teachers, normally, but not always, normally, you can figure out on your own whether or not they are biblically accurate. Because we have the Bible to go by. Uh, sometimes it may not be clear right away. It may not be clear till later. There are other times when it's still kind of clouded because of the kinds of language that they use and the way they express themselves, but it can be figured out. Secondly, they said the individual must speak in the name of the Lord. And then thirdly, if they are speaking of something that's going to take place in the future, it must come to pass, period. So the test that John sets forth would reveal whether prophets derive their message and inspiration from God and inevitably revealing their fundamental nature. So John gives the historical situation that made it necessary for believers to basically aggressively test the spirits because he says in this text that we read in 1 John 4, because many false prophets have gone out into the world. So it's not some future danger. Many false prophets are already at work. That's what he wants them to know. So as spiritual counterfeits of the New Testament office of, of prophets, they were suitable and they were a suitable, a subtle and a serious danger, and the urgent need was to expose and repudiate them. And I would say that because of social media, because of uh, various platforms that can be used to get a message out, uh, there is greater access to deceiving believers than ever before. The, the stuff that, you know, the stuff that's out there is just, it's all over the place. And there are times that we may, you know, you may come across, maybe let's say it's a meme, and you go, oh, that's really good, and you want to repost it. And, and you haven't really thought about the name under the meme that, that it attributes it to, and it may be some heretic. And inadvertently, what can happen is, is even though the meme by itself may still be good, 
you are promoting this false teacher. Because some go, oh, look, Bob just quoted Benny Hinn. Well, you must like Benny Hinn. I need to look him up. <laughs> you know? uh, I don't like Benny Hinn, so don't look him up. Uh, if you want to know what the latest heresy is, then look him up. Uh, and you can uh, listen to that. But the bottom line is, is that you know, we have to be discerning. Just because something sounds good, we have to be careful with that. Uh, remember that no one has a corner on truth. So if someone who's a false teacher says something good, ah, there's, there's something probably similar said by someone who's pretty decent. And so we need to be discerning in that way. Because there are, remember, whether you want to admit it or not, you and I have a, a lot of influence on people. Some of us more than others, as far as numerically, but all of us have influence on those that we're close to, our children, our grandchildren, close friends, those who've known us for years. What we say, what we repeat, does influence them. And we, and we, and we all make mistakes in that area, but we have to be careful. We are responsible for those things that, that we say that can be misleading. Yes, God still holds individuals responsible for being misled. He does. But he also holds us responsible for contributing to that. So the evidence then, in verse 2 of 1 John 4, of, of the Spirit of God, he says this, By this you know the Spirit of God. The verb that's rendered, you know, again uses the plural rather than the abstract, which is it is known. He says you know. So this involves, again, his readers directly in the application of the test. In other words, the knowledge gained involves a mental de deduction, carefully noting the content of the Spirit's confession concerning Jesus Christ and then drawing the conclusion. All right, so there may be times when you're listening to somebody and you may not know right away that the individual is kind of misleading. That's why we need to go back and review. We go back and think about what's being said or what has been said to make sure that it measures up. But the decisive test that John gives here is this. And when we just read this, we want to make sure that we don't, I don't, we don't want to oversimplify the application of this. Right, here's the statement. Every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God. And when I mean oversimplify, sometimes what we I guess maybe are tempted to do is an individual will just make the statement they believe in Jesus and we go no further with than that oh and they're, they're good um, that doesn't mean a thing just so you know it, just because someone says they believe in Jesus does not really mean anything they've not yet said anything because what does that mean does it mean they believe that there was a man who lived in history named Jesus well, if that's what they mean, that's not really saying much. Or do they mean something much more than that? Again, when he says every spirit, it marks the comprehensiveness of this test. In other words, everyone is going to be approved or rejected by the application of what he's talking about here. So the word confess is an important word here. There's a lot of important words in the Bible. And whenever you're studying anything and trying to look at uh, things deeply, words even become much more important. So the verb confesses here is not just some verbal acknowledgement. Right? The word confess carries with it the idea that there is an open and a forthright declaration of the message as one's own position. In other words, this word confess here, um, it is in the present tense and it marks it as an ongoing acknowledgement. So this confession is crucial. 
It's vital in the Christian faith. So again, this is not just the words that, that this individual believes that Jesus has come. It's much more than that. All right? They are making this declaration that this is something that, that they believe the essence of this, that, that what, what they believe is, is rooted in this truth. Simon uh, Kistemacher, and I'm not sure I'm saying that name right, said this, that when John says that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh, you notice the combination of the words Jesus and Christ. It occurs eight times in John's epistles. It occurs two places, uh, in two places in, uh, where John clearly separates the names by writing Jesus is the Christ. So keeping the two names together represents John's insistence that the historical person, Jesus Christ, is the abiding union of the human and the divine in the incarnation. So what he wants us to understand there is that when you read through the Bible, again, remember, everything in the Bible is important. There's nothing in there that happens by accident. We need, we need, to, make, we need to take note of, of things that are said and things that aren't said and the way things are said. So when Jesus Christ is put together, that is emphasizing then the union of the divine and the human, that, that the divine is taken on human. That is, Jesus the man, the Messiah, or the anointed one of God. This is, the, this is what is indicated uh, when he then adds these words, he has come in the flesh. When John says that Jesus Christ comes, has come in the flesh, what he doesn't say is that Jesus Christ has come into the flesh. Because there's a difference. Because there was this heresy that was going around then. It was, attributed, it was called Serinthian, not Corinthian, but Serinthian Gnosticism. Serinthus uh, uh, lived around 100 AD and he separated Jesus from Christ. If you've ever done any reading on theological history, even just briefly, you know there was a debate for a long time. You know, who is Jesus? Was Jesus divine? Was he not divine? How much of Jesus was human? How much was divine? Is it 50 50? You know, which is it? You know, and of course, what you may have heard through the years is that Jesus is 100% divine and 100% human. Now, there's a lot that's behind all of that, but that's. The, the right conclusion that people have come to. There were those who believed then, some still today, that Jesus was just a man, and then at some point, usually his baptism, the spirit of the divine came on him, and then at some point before his crucifixion, the spirit of the divine left him. And part of that is because there was some confusion where people were trying to work out how does Jesus, who was God, how does he die? And they were having trouble with that. And so they were trying to find a solution. But the solution they found was not biblical. So this man, Serinthus, he taught that, again, the Spirit of Christ came upon the man Jesus, um, who is the son of Joseph and Mary. Again, at, at his baptism, that's what he said. It empowered his ministry. And then, as I mentioned, many believe this, that at some point it left before his crucifixion. And that only the man, Jesus, died. And then the man, Jesus, rose again. So it was a rejection of the doctrine of the incarnation. Right, so what we celebrate at Christmas, it's a big deal. Right, what we believe is that the second person of the Trinity has taken on human flesh permanently. And he come to live among men. Right, God took on flesh. And of course, if you get rid of the incarnation, you obliterate the teaching of the atonement. Again, when it says he has come in the flesh, that's perfect tense. What does that mean? Well, that means that it makes clear that when Jesus Christ came into the world to carry out his messianic mission. He took on himself a very real human body. He wasn't just a phantom appearance as a man, uh, which there was a, a doctrine or a group of docetic Gnostics who maintained that. 
So heresy's been around for a long time, comes in different forms, and still remains in that way even to this day. So uh, if you're familiar with T.D. Jakes, uh, he is, his denomination he's from is called Oneness Pentecostalism. That's a denial that they don't believe in the Trinity. That's very problematic. A lot of people like T.D. Jakes. There's a problem. He doesn't believe what the Bible says. He, he teaches from the Bible. He quotes from the Bible. Sounds like everything he says about the Bible is right. But he does not believe that Jesus is, uh, that he is God in the flesh. He doesn't believe in the Trinity. He doesn't believe that. I'm not sure it's all what he believes on that because I don't really care. Because the main thing, he doesn't believe. But that, that's a problem. It's difficult to, to say, that is my brother. And then that's where people have a hard time today because, you know, again, our culture really shies away from making certain dogmatic statements. Now, we have to be careful with those. There has to be reasons for those things. But there must be that kind of clarity because that's what God is calling for here is discernment because it affects us as individuals. It affects salvation. You have a son or a daughter who you've been praying for, for their salvation for a long time. And you're concerned because you understand that the Bible says that if you don't place your faith and trust in Jesus Christ, then that person will die in their sin and go to hell. And they get caught up in oneness Pentecostalism. And they go to church every Sunday. Are you happy? Well, some people say, well, as long as they're going. What does that even mean? As long as they're going, they're not getting the truth. They're not getting it there. I mean... If you're not getting truth, you go to there or you go to the church of Satan. What is the difference? Maybe the church of Satan is a little easier to refute. Because at least they're not pretending. Now there are many well-meaning people in one Pentecost. There are many well-meaning people. Remember, you can be well-meaning and be just as lost as you can be. Or be as wrong as you can be. Again, this is not a declaration that we're better than anybody. Because that's, you know, that's the accusation from culture, right? Well, you just think you're better than everybody else. No, not really. I have to go to the scripture. What does it say? We can look at this together. What does it say? I'm submitting to what this is saying. I'm not saying I know better than anybody else because I don't. But I know that's wrong. Period. And so, and we're sometimes afraid to take that stand because we'll be viewed as being negative. We'll be viewed as being against that person. And not the teaching, but the person you're trying to help. They, they may write you off. I don't want to talk to you anymore. You just you don't like anybody. You can't help how they're going to view what you say. And we do try to say things as kind as possible, but we still have to stand firm on what the truth is. Compromising what the, the truth about Christ is never going to be the pathway to that person getting saved. Amen. It's just not going to happen. That's why we pray for them and ask that God will open their eyes and help them to see clearly because they're being deluded and being... Um, deceived again the perfect tense also marks the incarnation as again an abiding reality this permanent union of the divine and the human now qualifies Jesus to be the mediator between God and men Leon Moore says this the apostolic teaching on the incarnate Christ gathers within its total significance the other great doctrinal truths such as the virgin birth the crucifixion and the resurrection the Incarnation is the essential creed of Christianity. On this doctrine, all else which calls itself Christian stands or falls. That would be foundational when it comes to Mormonism. Mormonism believes that Jesus and Satan at one time were brothers in heaven. 
And that when Jesus came to earth, he eventually became a God. Okay, that's a denial of the incarnation. You don't have to know anything else that they teach. It's wrong foundationally. Everything else that you build on that is going to be wrong as well. Again, he says, every spirit that freely confesses the apostolic message, that's the message of the apostles, every spirit that freely confesses the apostolic message concerning the person of Jesus Christ reveals that it is from God, that it proceeds from God, who has revealed himself through the incarnate Son. Verse 2 again, by this you know the Spirit of God. Every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God. Then he says, and every spirit that does not confess Jesus is not from God. This is the spirit of the Antichrist, which you heard was coming, and now is in the world already. So he wants to give us a complete picture of the spirits. So he deals with this negative aspect of this confession. In other words, that, that does not confess. It's essential. Failure to recognize this part of the test um, would expose us to serious deception. That's what I mean by that. The negative aspect of the test is stated in this way. Every spirit that does not confess Jesus is not from God. Again, every spirit. John here is allowing nothing in between. There is no in-between position between the spirit that confesses Jesus Christ and the spirit that fails to confess. Not the spirit that denies. That's clear. The line he's drawing is, it's those who confess Jesus the Christ and those who just fail to. The crucial point of this is if there's a failure to confess Christ as he is set forth, remember this, it's possible to talk glowingly about the man Jesus and yet refuse to accept the apostolic teaching that the historical Jesus of Nazareth was indeed God incarnate. If a person claims to believe in Jesus, it is proper to ask, which Jesus are you talking about? So John's negative statement, every spirit that does not confess Jesus, is much broader in scope than saying every spirit that denies Jesus. Right? Paul, I mean, John here wants to make it really clear. An open denial of Jesus obviously stamps a spirit as not from God, not coming from, from God or proclaiming God's truth. But again, John's negative statement comprehends any spirit seeking through a false prophet that sought to hide its true identity by avoiding discussion of the decisive issue. John knew that which such a spirit did not say about Jesus and speaking of him was also significant. You, we hear that sometimes, you know, if you hear politicians talk or you hear them when they're asked questions by interviewers, you usually can't help but notice, but sometimes it's pointed out by someone else that the politician is asked a question and he answers another question. He's changed the subject. He's gone a different direction. It's almost like, you know, uh, well, over here we have, uh, just some do it much, more, much better than others. And now sometimes it may happen because they really can't. There may be national security things that are in play and they can't do that. But we also know that when people are running for office, that's very, very common. They want to get back to whatever they think their talking point is. But the idea here is that when it comes to the church, when it comes to teachers, when it comes to what is being said about Jesus, that it's not that an individual can talk this good game about Jesus. But we also at times have to look for what's not being said. And if it's not being said, this confession here that John's talking about, remember John says there's no in-between. He says categorically there's no in-between. They are not from God, period. And we live in a day and age when 
that, that may be a common way, at least we, we would probably label them as certain liberal churches. We have to be careful with that because that term can mean all kinds of things to people. But the idea is that those who veer away from the scripture, those who veer away from the, from the revealed singular truths, the absolute truths of the Bible about Jesus, there are those who are going to, in their churches and from their pulpits, say all these great things about the Bible and about Jesus, and yet stay away from them. I've talked to individuals who've gone to certain churches who've told me their entire life they never heard the gospel, but they were in church every Sunday. They never heard it. I've, I've, told, I've talked to people and talked about the fact that, that um, Jesus is God. And I've had people come to me, are you sure about that? I have never heard a minister say that before. My, I, my thought is, what ministers have you been listening to? But anyway, you know, I don't, I don't want to embarrass them, but that has, it's being said by people. Sometimes by individuals who are in their 50s and 60s and 70s. And so individuals, again, can dance around some of these issues very cleverly. And we won't pick up on it. In fact, John tells us that this is clearly the spirit of the Antichrist, which means against Christ. So they're not neutral, because there is no neutrality. They are against Christ. A failure to confess the full truth concerning Jesus establishes the positive identity that you are the spirit of the Antichrist. John is in no doubt that the denial of the apostolic confession about Jesus Christ, again, is not intellectual error. It's not advanced theology. It represents the very spirit of rebellion against God and can only be condemned. That is why when we talk about the gospel, you want to kind of give it, I guess, in its because you can give a very succinct form of it. But the bottom line is the gospel is this. The second person of the Trinity took on human flesh and was born to a virgin, lived on this earth as a man, as a perfect man, the perfect God-man. He was perfect in every way, committing no sin, no error, no lack of judgment in any way, shape, or form. This man came knowing that he was going to be asked to lay his life down for the redemption of many and came for that reason, came to die. He then, when that time came, really you could tell throughout the life of Christ, he was in charge. Because remember that, you know, one of my favorite stories is when the officers come to arrest Jesus in the garden, there's anywhere from six to 800 men there. That's a lot of men coming to, to arrest Jesus. And in one of the Gospels, you know, Jesus kind of steps forward between all the, this large group of men and his disciples. He says, who are you looking for? And the guy says, Jesus of Nazareth. And Jesus says, I am he. Everybody, boom, down on their knees. I don't think they did that voluntarily, but they all were down on their knees which means they all had to get up again. Then Jesus asked the question again. Who are you looking for? And the guy says, if I'm behind that guy, I go, hold on. <laughs> uh, I don't know if you should say that. This is, this is not a good situation. But he says it anyway. And of course, we know what Jesus says. I'm he, let them go. So he was in charge. We, we even sing songs. that He could have called 10,000 angels and you know, that's someone's imagination, but he, we know that he had that ability, but he didn't. Willingly laid his life down, and he was punished for our sin. That is, that's what the gospel is, and that he died, and that he was buried, and that he rose again. That is the message we believe. There's no way to compromise on any of that. We believe that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh. 
And those who won't express that openly are not of God. I don't care what kind of teacher they are. I don't care what country they're from. I don't care how great their accent may be. It doesn't matter. The bottom line is they're not from God. We are all to be discerning when it comes to that. That is the truth. That is the message that we then bring to others. You can even use that in your discussion with someone. Someone says, well, you know, I like listening to so-and-so. I don't think I'd listen to him. Why? Well, I'm glad you asked why. And too often what happens, we want to make, avoid this mistake. Don't just point out whatever that teacher's false doctrines are. You can do that. But if that person you're speaking to is not a, not a Christian, you can always use this approach. Well, you know, they, they don't believe the real basic truths about Jesus. Do you know what that is? Because many people, when put on the spot, will go, well, I mean, not, not really, because they don't want to be wrong. You say, well, I'll tell you what it is. And you just tell them what I just told you. And that you believe that. And you put your faith and trust in that, that God saved you from your sin. You were forgiven of your sin. And this marvelous gift of salvation means that you've been given eternal life and that you will be with the Lord for all of eternity. Amen. And so that is what we must then proclaim as, as believers, unashamedly. That is what we must proclaim as we teach the word of God. And that is the criteria that John is saying here that we need to use to determine if somebody is from God or not from God. And so in the years and months ahead, even though our church has been here for 52 years, we need to make sure that, that no matter what happens in our culture, that we don't deviate from that. And the way we make sure that we don't deviate from that as a church is that we as individuals don't deviate from that. And that we are discerning the whole time. Remember at one time, you know, some of you, you know, now I guess now it's ancient history, but you know, Jim Jones and the whole group that went down to, uh, uh, they, they ended up in, was it Ghana? And, the, and there was, you know, mass suicide. That's where we use the phrase, you know, they're drinking the Kool-Aid. Everybody drinking the Kool-Aid, they all died. Well, you know, he began preaching the gospel. In church every Sunday, he was preaching the gospel. And I read a secular book about him, and they said that through the years, actually it was through the months, you know, he began to change the message. Because he would always say, the Lord says, the Lord says. And then every now and then he would say, I say, I say. And then pretty soon, there was no longer the Lord says. It was only I say. And then it launched off into getting this group. And there, again, we know over 800 people died there. The church had over 1,000 people. This guy was preaching some wild stuff. And I often wonder, because this is what always gets me. So everybody just stopped thinking. Everybody. And there were lawyers and doctors. You know, people that we at least assume have some kind of IQ. There wasn't all a bunch of... You know, individuals who had been hit in the head when they were, when they were babies and they can't think. They're people from all walks of life. And they willingly went on. They did some bizarre things in that church even before they all went down and ended up committing suicide. Well, we're susceptible to that. And so the way we make sure that we're not, the, make sure, the way we make sure that we protect our children and our grandchildren and those that we haven't even thought of yet is to make sure that we practice discernment as the Lord has commanded. Let's pray. Father in heaven, again, we thank you for your goodness, grace, and kindness. And we pray that you would help us as a church, as individuals, to remain faithful to your word and to be faithful to the proclamation that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh and all that that carries with it. We thank you, Lord, that message has been made clear to us. For those of us who believe in Christ, that message was made clear to us. Even though we may not have been paying attention to all of its details before. 
And we pray, Lord, that you would help us to cling to this central truth that must be the pillar of what we believe. Father, we do pray for those who maybe they're unclear on these things. Maybe they're not really sure. They, they actually believe that. They've not been challenged to believe that. We pray that you would stir their hearts. That, Lord, that they would think about your word, the proclamation that's made here by John, by Jesus himself. We pray that you reveal to them, Lord, the, the need they have because they are separated from you. The need to have their sin forgiven and to be reconciled to you. So, Father, we pray that your spirit would convict them of their need of Christ. Again, we pray for those of us who believe that, Father, that you would help us to, be, to remain even stronger in what we believe and hold to. But, Father, to do so in such a way that the world doesn't think that we're angry about it, that we're very happy about it, that we're actually very relieved that it's the truth, and that we've embraced it, and along with that, we have the joy of God himself. So, Father, as always, we just thank you so much, Lord, for the clarity, the strength of your word. We do ask these things in Christ's name. Amen.